the first epistle of John. The first epistle of John and chapter 2. 1 John 2 and beginning at verse 15. 1 John 2, 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is a very important technical term in Christian theology. Its meaning is closely linked to the actual physical earth. Because this earth is the only realm which the non-believer knows. And that's where the unbeliever has his home. Whereas the Christian is only a temporary resident upon this earth. The Christian is a citizen of heaven and will be so forever. Furthermore, this physical earth, in contrast to heaven, is also only of a temporary nature for both Christians and non-Christians alike. And so we must encourage the non-Christian to stop putting all their trust in the things of this world. But we must also warn believers that even though they have become citizens of heaven, they can still have a tendency to set their affection on things on the earth. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ declared, and this is such an important statement, he said in John 18 and verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, the technical term world in the Bible is the exact opposite of the kingdom of God. So you have Satan's domain on the one hand, the world, and you have the kingdom of God. The world is where Satan reigns supreme. That is in terms of men's affections and allegiance. The devil is an angel who has been cast out of God's presence in heaven. And so his only sphere of activity is the air of this world, this world's atmosphere. He, he, he's called in Ephesians, the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Every non-believer is walking according to the course of this world. 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And so we must understand that every non-Christian belongs to this world and belongs to Satan's kingdom. They are not in a place of spiritual neutrality or spiritual innocence. If a man does not believe in Jesus Christ, he belongs to this world and is following Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 is very important in this regard. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. And so, far from being a free thinker, the man who rejects God, the man of this world, is actually blinded by the devil. Now, such a man might have a string of degrees after his name. He might be greatly admired in society, but if he does not believe in Jesus Christ, he is under a satanic blinding. And that is how serious unbelief really is. And Christian conversion is being released from the clutches of the devil himself, and it's being removed into a completely different sphere. It's being translated from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ. So the word world has an ethical and theological dimension to it. It does not just simply mean the planet, but it refers to the whole realm in which unbelief reigns. So this term world is a vital Christian concept. It describes the whole system in which men live their lives without reference to God. So we are told in this verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If a man loves the world, he does not love God. A person either belongs to the kingdom of God or to the world the kingdom of Satan. One either believes in the Lord Jesus Christ or in the man-made philosophies of this world. We live in a society which is dominated by the world's philosophies which are in direct opposition to biblical teaching. And so we are in a conflict with the world. Now the word world 
obviously also carries with it a connotation of universality. The majority of people in our world are not Christians. Sin and unbelief and rejection of God are the norm. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Man by nature always embraces God-rejecting philosophies in his mode of thinking. Now, the world's philosophies are always assailing the church, are always endeavouring to lead God's true people astray. So we must constantly be on our guard as Bible-believing Christians, as those who are born again. We must be on our guard against allowing the world's philosophies to influence our Christian thinking. But this so often happens. Now, there's a very important warning about this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you, ravage you, make a shipwreck of you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And so we see that there is a mode of thinking in the world which is in complete opposition to the mind of God. And so when the world talks about equality and human rights and compassion, we should be on our guard. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. When the world talks about being inclusive and embracing diversity, we must not think, oh, that sounds Christian, we'll go along with it. No. We must come apart and be separate. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Now we have a similar message in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And let's read the whole of that verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? The great wise men of this society. Where is the disputer of this world? The highly skilled debater, the great philosopher. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Then verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, The world by wisdom, its own wisdom, and knew not God. 
It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so men are going to be brought into the light through the foolishness of preaching. Through the foolishness of the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. But our society is constantly being bombarded by the world's philosophy. And at the moment, that is taking the form of saving the planet, honouring Mother Earth, pursuing net zero climate policies. This is one of the primary philosophies of our age. They are making plans to restrict our movements in order to save the planet so that we can't go more than 20 minutes. And if we live in a certain town or city, we can only travel for 20 minutes in that place. That's what they're trying to do. Think of how that's going to affect the preaching of the gospel, for starters. But it's all part of the wisdom of this world. And the wisdom of this world likes to think that all the world's problems are due to certain categories of people who are prejudiced and bigoted. And if we could just deal with these prejudiced, bigoted people, then we'd have a perfect world. And they're quite happy to say who they think the prejudiced and bigoted people are, and it's quite often (laughs) us Christians. But that is completely contrary to what the Bible says. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And many regard the whole issue of gender and how it's dealt with in society as, as, as being a primary problem. So the world says that men are the problem. The feminist philosophy says that men are the problem. That our patriarchal societies have created so many injustices. But the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Men are not more sinful than women and women are not more sinful than men. But the world thinks differently. And the churches must stop imbibing the world's foolish notions. So, the problem of world poverty, what what does the philosophy of this world say? It's all down to the nasty West and their colonialist exploitation. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that God deals with all nations as nations. Are they honouring him or not? And the Bible teaches that 
sinful actions are not the prerogative of any one particular nationality or ethnic group, but all have sinned, all come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, there is no man that sinneth not. And so there is no one part of the world's population which are the poor, exploited people, and the other part of the world's population are the nasty exploiters. But that is how they are trying to present the world to the contemporary generation. That's how the world now thinks. That's what our children are being taught. And so children in our own country are being taught to be ashamed of this nation's history. Now, of course, it's not perfect. Can you name the history of any nation anywhere in the world that's perfect and spotless? Of course not. But again, we see that the problem of sin is a universal one. The world does not think like that. The world always wants to find a special group which they can place the blame on. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So we need to realise that what we proclaim as Bible-believing Christians, the world finds foolish because it's a complete variance with the way the world thinks. And so the world does not like to be told that it is sinful. Because people say, well, I'm an inclusive person. And I embrace diversity. I embrace lots of different lifestyles. I don't judge anybody. And so... People think that they are virtuous, good people because they conform to the philosophies of this world. But the Bible calls the wisdom of this world foolishness. The world has a system of values utterly opposed to the Christian gospel. But if you look at the world's philosophies, it's reached the stage where they do not even know the difference between a man and a woman. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. To become a Christian is to leave this world. A true Christian must stop thinking like the world thinks. We do not need the world to help us to know what kind of message to proclaim. We do not need to analyse what the world is currently saying so we know how to fashion our Christian message. Because to become a Christian is to leave the world. It's to transfer allegiance 
Peter describes Christians as those who have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This world is a corrupt system. And it's based on lust, desire. I feel it, therefore it must be right. I feel I want to change my gender, therefore that must be right. This is how so many are thinking. I feel attracted to the same sex, therefore that must be right for me. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Becoming a Christian is to leave the lusts, the philosophies and the belief systems of this world. To become a Christian is to change kingdoms, literally. To become a Christian is to defect from the world and to go on the other side. To transfer allegiance. Sadly, many churches in our day have become totally captive to the spirit of this world. So, feminism is popular in the world, so the church embraces feminism. Whatever happened to be not conformed to this world? Romans 12 verse 2. So as we have mentioned, it is so fashionable in the world to be concerned about global warming and saving the planet. It is a new religion. And if you don't conform, you are a dangerous heretic. We live in a world which is intolerant of any deviation from its own belief system. We live in a world that wants to silence Christians. We live in a world where it has become a crime to pray outside of an abortion clinic. Being a Christian means complete separation from the world and its ways of thinking. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so we've got to keep separate. Now, this is why a true believer who's in a compromised church which has abandoned the authority of the Bible should get out of that church. They should get out. And so we courteously suggest that the argument, well, I'm going to stay in and to try and change it, 
No, that won't work. You will be the one who will be corrupted. Get out. Because there can be no coexistence between the true church and the world. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And so there must be a separation. Verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 6. One, what concord hath Christ with Belial, worthlessness, Satan's system? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel, one who does not believe? We cannot make common cause with non-believers. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 6. Wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. So we have a duty to separate from the errors of this world. And we now live in a world where so many people have this idea that the state is our saviour. So any problems, the state and its experts are going to solve all those problems. But a Christian must not think like that. Because we have left this world. And so as Christians, we, we must not submit ourselves to any other authority than Almighty God. So we, if it comes to personal medical Choices. We do not submit ourselves to what the world thinks or what the state tells us. Because God is our authority. The state says it's fine to go and have an abortion. Do we submit to that? Of course not. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. However, and this is the problem, even professing Christians can remain attached to this world. Adopting its attitudes and being drawn away by its enticements. How easy it is for believers, just taking an example, they are believers. But they can allow the world to fashion them in a very negative way. They can begin to give second place in their lives to prayer, Bible study, worship and evangelism. Oh yes, they profess Christ. But these things are not at the top of their list of priorities. 
There is always the danger of allowing hobbies, leisure pursuits, material comforts, culture, career, or any other concerns, including legitimate concerns, to take precedence. And it's always a danger of Christians, as we have said, wanting to embrace current fashionable thinking. Because that is what the Christians are being bombarded with every day through the media. And that's why we have to be so careful in our exposure to the mainstream media. Because they have an anti-Christian worldview. Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul says this, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. And so Paul is emphasising there in Galatians 6 his complete non-attachment to this world. The world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. What does this mean? Well, the world has become to the believer that which is dead. Its attractions and its philosophies now count for nothing. The world, in fact, is an object of contempt to the true believer. And likewise, the believer himself is crucified to the world. He becomes an object of contempt to the world. And the world wants nothing to do with him. And again, this this is a difficult area for some. People love having other people like them. They don't want to be an object of contempt. And of course, we never go out of our way to seek the world's disapproval. That that would be utterly foolish. Nevertheless, one of the marks of a true believer is that he readily does incur the world's displeasure. And so John is saying in our text here, 1 John 2 verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can we grasp the importance of this? If a man loves the world, he cannot be a true Christian. This world and its allurements must never be the Christian's focus. And even the legitimate things of life must not become ends in themselves for the Christian. Now, our earthly concerns are important. We have to earn a living. 
We have to look after our families. God desires our earthly happiness. But we must always keep these earthly concerns in perspective. Never making them subordinate to love for God. And so, for example, say a Christian is considering a career move, but it will take him away from his church where he's actively involved. Now, one is not saying that it's always wrong for a believer to leave a church in which he is involved, but the issue is this. What is the priority? The career or the Lord's service? That's the issue, and each individual must work out what that means for them. But love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. What a recurring theme this is. If then ye were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your a mind, your affection on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth. And so the Christian must always have this non-worldly focus. Where does our true affection lie? Because we can be professing Christians, but in our everyday life we can be just consumed by this world. Love of the world can seriously mar a Christian's walk. And the parable of the sower, of course, makes this abundantly clear. Luke 8, verse 14. Luke 8, verse 14. The seed that fell among thorns are they which, when they have heard the word of God, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. So the world's potential to stifle spiritual life is enormous. And uh, we mentioned uh, this gentleman recently, uh, this man who used to help the Apostle Paul in the work of the Gospel. He was very valuable. But in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Paul tells us, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So even those who have been much used in God's service can still be allured away by this world. Demas abandoned the work of the gospel because of earthly concerns. Going back to 1 Corinthians... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 
verse 29. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it or overusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. Now what is Paul saying there? He is not telling us to abandon our earthly obligations and happiness. He's not telling Christian men uh, to leave their wives. Of course he's not saying that. But what he is declaring is that these earthly attachments must be viewed in the context of our Christian service. And there is a danger of so overworking the earthly, worldly attachments that we have nothing left without them. And so we can become so attached to a person or to family members that we actually make a God out of them instead of trusting the Lord. But these wonderful family blessings are always in the context of our primary allegiance to the Lord. We must always remember that the greatest earthly joy will of necessity only be temporary. And so our trust must not be in the passing things of this world, even though some of them will be very good and wonderful and wholesome and pure and lovely. But we must make the Lord alone our trust. And then the other involvements that we have will fall into place and actually become even more wonderful to us if we give the Lord, the priority. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We must maintain a separation from this world. And then verse 16 of 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The things of this world are temporary and fleeting. But what a hold they can nevertheless have. And John here identifies in verse 16 three particular characteristics of worldliness which draw people away from God. The first is the lust of the flesh. Now, flesh is the general scriptural term for a man's whole fallen nature, inclined to evil. But in this particular context, here in 1 John 2, 
John by flesh is referring more precisely to our physical bodies. Much sin originates in the desire to gratify and pamper the body's senses. You see, devoid of the Holy Spirit, a man is mere body, mere flesh, mere animal passion, with no desire to serve God. And the world around him is constantly trying to excite his sensual appetites. Many people have a frantic desire for elation. Have you ever noticed this on New Year's Eve? People are almost desperate to enjoy themselves. And this is why people drink to excess. Search for elation. It's why they take drugs, which is an exposure to evil spirits. People are in search of a so-called good time. A constant search for better sensations. And cultural entertainment can often appeal to the body in this sense, to the flesh. For example, rock music, with its frenzied, incessant beat is aimed at sensual excitement. One thing that we've always noticed at pride parades, as the people walk past, celebrating their rebellion against God, they are constantly being worked up into a frenzy of elation by a mu- music with a very heavy beat. And it's almost as if they need the rock music to make them enjoy themselves. And, you know, this music has real power. You, you see a crowd of people just standing there and then the rock music starts and they're transformed. It's a direct appeal to the flesh. And we need to understand this as Christians. And and that's why Christians should never even think of incorporating this type of music uh, into worship. Philippians 3, verse 18. Paul says, Many walk being the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. So Paul had to deal with professing Christians who lived to satisfy their physical appetites, to eat and to drink, slaves to the passion of the moment, preoccupied with earthly sensations, sensations and pleasures. Well, many would not have been truly born again. But even those who are born again can quench the spirit by allowing themselves to be enticed by these worldly 
attractions. The lusts of the flesh uh, include sexual immorality. Now, the world often describes such immorality as being natural. But the problem is that man's nature is corrupted anyway. It's alienated from God anyway. So saying it's natural is no defence. Romans 13, verse 13. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, sexual immorality, not in strife and envying. But put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfil the lusts thereof. And in this verse 16, Paul, uh, John also refers to the lust of the eyes. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. So the lust of the eyes can draw men away from God. Now, John is distinguishing the lust of the eyes from the lusts of the flesh. He is referring here to desires especially associated with the eyes themselves. Simply by looking, a man can be led to coveting and over-concern for material things. Things morally neutral or even wholesome can become objects of sinful desire if not kept in their right place, the lust of the eyes. We, even as Christians, must take care not to eye up the things of this world and become so distracted that we neglect the service of God. Ecclesiastes 2.10. Now, Solomon was a really intelligent man. But he says this in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. So Solomon allowed his eyes to dictate his behaviour and he nearly made a shipwreck of his faith. He was, of course, a true believer. But he allowed his eyes to get the better of him. He did so on a sophisticated, artistic, cultural and aesthetic level. He surrounded himself with aesthetic beauty. But none of those things ultimately satisfied him. And we are also... Referred to in verse 16, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Pride of life draws men away from God. Boasting of living. People's personal pride at what they are and what they do. So many have a self-assurance that thinks that life can be lived without any reference to God. That's pride of life. That was the sin of Satan himself, who who wanted to be like God, his own master. 
So the pride of life is an empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. The pride of life includes the empty pride of receiving the praise of others. The world bestows its awards and honours, but this has no bearing on a man's standing with Almighty God. Well, there's so much more one could say on this passage, but we must draw to a close. We are being warned about the alluring nature of this world. The world has great power to draw people away from God. We must be on our guard against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We must love not the world or the things of this world. Where do our real affections lie? How we must ensure that our true affections lie only with the things of God and not with the things of this world. Because as John is teaching us here, the love of the world is incompatible with loving God. Amen.